0: Let's pray together. Father God, we, we really do need you now. Some of us are, are consciously aware of our need for you. We've experienced failure or setback or tragedy this week. And we come in with our head bowed and our hands open, saying, God, I, I need I need you. And we pray that you would meet us here in this moment. And there are others of us, God, who aren't consciously aware of our need for you, but you know that we need you. And I pray that in your mercy, you would give us eyes to see the gaps in our lives that require an intervention from you. Speak to us in these moments so that we can see you as you are and so that we can see ourselves as you see us. Speak, God. Give us ears to hear and hearts that long to obey. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us for this portion of a beautiful Holland weekend. We're continuing a series called Fortune Cookie Faith. We're taking kind of like a brief run through the book of Proverbs, five weeks, looking at different topics last week. Our lead pastor, Craig Reese, did a great job examining one proverb that focuses on this whole idea of self-control and what, what drives that. Is it external motivation or internal motivation? And if you miss it, you can go online and check it out. Uh, today we're talking about humility. Next week Dan Seaborne is going to be talking about parenting. We're talking about marriage. And then uh, finally we're going to be talking about generosity to round the, round the whole series out. And the reason that we're calling it Fortune Cookie Faith is because there are a lot of these short, pithy statements in the book of Proverbs that could fit right on a slip of paper that would fit inside of a, of a fortune cookie. And just to give us a little bit more insight about how pers- kind of life lived gives us perspective on the character qualities that matter. Here's one of my favorite voices at Central, Nick Walters, who oversees our middle school ministry, interviewing some treasured members of our legacy generation on their thoughts on humility. Let's check this out. What about uh, when I say the word humility, what's the first thing that comes to your the mind? word? Humility. Or being humble. Oh, oh. What comes to um, your mind? Well, if... If you have done something, perhaps a little bit uh, remarkable or something like that, if you could just let that go over your shoulder, you know. What do you guys think of when you hear the word humility? Something I don't have enough of sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You go first, Weitzker. When you get older, it gets much easier because you see too many wrinkles (laughs) <laughs> and and you know, you know, you can't stay young. Right. Well, I used to write some poetry and I, I remember there was one line I wrote for my wife, you know, a lot of poems and something about, she always came to all my ball games and cheered every time when I got a bass set and never said a word when I struck out, you know. So. Oh, man. For me, it's it's a little different because I do the town crying and you got to kind of show off. You know, so it's kind of hard to be uh, humble. Uh, but then again, I, I can remember a, a friend of ours, uh, and he said it's tough. But then he said, "I'm so humble, I'm proud of it." <laughs> <laughs> you know. So then, it's, you see what I'm saying? So humble, right. and humility, and being humble right. is not easy always. Right. Yep. Mm. It's an accurate assessment, isn't it? It's humility. It's not, it's not uh, easy always, is it? No. No, it's not. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to take a group of men on a trip to the Holy Land, and one of the items that was on our checklist was to climb this mountain, uh, uh, on top of which was an ancient fortress called Masada. And there's two ways that you can get to the top of the mountain. You can either climb this winding path called the Snake Path that's got all these switchbacks and feels nearly vertical, or you can take the easy route and pay for a cable car. And so I was with a group of guys We were highly competitive. We checked the tour guide and it said it takes most people between 60 and 90 minutes to ascend this path. And we said, well, we can, we, we can do that. So we got there, we started our stopwatches and we motored up that thing as quickly as we could. And we're huffing and puffing. We're exhausted, we're just drenched in sweat. We check our watches, 32 minutes. We're like, oh, we crushed it. We just, we just obliterated the national average. So a little bit later in the week, we're in this very serene environment in Jerusalem called the Garden Tomb, and we're interacting with some other Americans that were there, and we ran into this one couple, and my friend said, did you guys go to Masada? And they said, yes, we did. They said, did you hike to the top or take the cable car? And they said, we hiked. And then he did it. He offered a piece of entirely unnecessary information. He said, we did it in 32 minutes. How long did it take you? And without blinking, the husband said, we did it in 16 minutes. We're trail runners from Alaska. (laughs) There's a verse in Proverbs that says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So sometimes the answer is just, just, just lay low. Proverbs is a compilation of sayings from a father to a young leader. And humility is a frequent topic. Here's another helpful one liner. Str- where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Think about that for a second. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. So a week ago, yesterday, I'm driving my third grade son to a lacrosse game right across the street over here to the Howland Middle School Athletic Complex. And while we were there, we are driving in the right lane and on the left lane there was a, a car that came to an abrupt stop and the person behind them is getting ready to swerve to get around them. Uh, but they don't see me, I'm in his blind spot. So as he's getting ready to just completely swing into my passenger side, uh, driver's side door, I authoritatively lay on my horn. Uh, there There were no finger gestures involved. This was just one of those gentle, hey, please try not to kill us, we're here. And in that moment, my son turns to me and says this. He goes, dad, do you know what fruit of the spirit you need to work on? And my initial initial response was, oh, if we're handing out notes on character development, I have a book for you, my son. Um, You ever have one of those moments where you bite your tongue so hard it starts to bleed? If anybody ever needs to work on humility, have children. They will fix you. (laughs) And uh, then, then he gave me the notes, even though I didn't ask for initial input. He goes, the right answer is gentleness and patience. And I was like, thank you. I'll work on that. The book of Proverbs continues, reminding us what? That pride is at the root of all unrighteous anger. Proverbs 18.12 says, before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. 15.33 says, wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, but humility comes before honor. Jesus himself says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I want us to look at a case study in humility. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have a Bible that's in the seat in front of you, you can turn to page 366 if you brought your own Bible. 2 Kings is about midway through the Old Testament or the First Testament. If you've got a phone that has the U version app, you just kind of click on the the, the icon that says Read, and a list of the books of the Bible will come up. You press 2 Kings, a chapter list will come up. Just press the number 5, and then we're going to start at verse 1. As we do... I want you to look for four characters. There's a slave, a general, a prophet, and a servant. A slave, a general, a prophet, and a servant. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this person self-centered or are they others-centered? Are they a paramount of pride or are they the hallmark of humility? This is what we read in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. It's interesting to note there that Aram is Israel's enemy. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy, a debilitating skin disease. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman is the joint chief of staff for the Aramean forces. Aram is currently conducting cross-border raids into Israel, their neighbor to the west. And an Israelite slave is working for Naaman's family. For all we know, her parents were killed in the raid. And even if they survive, the likelihood that she has been separated from her entire family is high. And Naaman has leprosy. It's the, one of the conditions or the results of leprosy is the inability to feel pain. Sometimes you'll hear stories of people who have leprosy who will lose, the will lose fingers or the will lose toes because they were burned or they were cut. And because their nerve endings were not communicating to their brain, they had, they had no idea they were in danger can imagine how debilitating this would be as somebody who is in combat. If you can't feel pain, you don't know when to withdraw so that you can live to fight another day. Another possible symptom of leprosy is weakened or diminished eyesight. Again, if you're a military strategist and you cannot see the battlefield, you're losing all of the things that make you great at what you do. My daughter and I were watching the Marvel movie, Dr. Strange, yesterday, and for those of you comic book fans, you know that he's a neurosurgeon, and he crashes his Lamborghini, and as a result, he has to have major surgery on all of his hands. He's lost what he needs to do what he does well, and it sends his life into a tailspin. That's exactly what's happening with Naaman here. But this young girl, who's been through so much trauma... Instead of wishing ill on Naaman in his leprosy diagnosis, she's actually trying to find a solution. She exhibits compassion and concern for him. So Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, which is approximately 750 pounds of metal. 6,000 shekels or 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. This is how kings talk to one another. Hey, my, my buddy's got a problem. I need you to fix it. The problem is nobody can cure leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel, we believe that it's Joram, read this letter, he tore his robes, an ancient display of distress, and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Have you ever noticed that one of the the results of pride is paranoia? When you're you're living a self-centered life, everything is about you. And anything that somebody else does reeks a potential conspiracy to bring you down. Have you ever heard this line? Somebody once said, most of the time when you wonder what people are thinking about you, they're not. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. I'll think about that for a moment. How put off is Naaman? Naaman is somebody who runs in royal company. He reports directly to his king. He's just come from the palace of Israel's king. He goes to Elisha's house, and Elisha has the audacity not to grant him a personal audience. Instead, he sends his servant, somebody who is beneath Naaman's class and sphere of influence, to have a conversation with him. And on top of that, he tells him to go wash in the Jordan River. It says that Naaman, understandably, went away angry. And said, I thought he would surely come out and stand before me and call on the name of his Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and Parphyr, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. In Naaman's defense, I have been to the Jordan River. It is not an impressive body of water. We, we'll take guys to get baptized there in a couple weeks, and the, the location that we go to, it's, it's slow-moving, it's sluggish, it's so muddy that you can't even see the bottom, and at this particular point, it's about 15 feet across. And so Naaman is like, hey, if all I need to do is to take a bath, I've got about 20 better options back home. Why? Because pride doesn't just produce paranoia. Pride produces panic. Pride says, what will happen if I embarrass myself? What will happen if I lose my social standing in front of others? What will happen if I try something risky and it fails? I have a friend who once said a relative of his told him, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. It's Naaman in this moment. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, if he told you to run a race or fight a battle or climb a mountain to be healed, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. Can you imagine Naaman being like, all right, here goes. And he goes down once. And I wonder if he checks his skin every time he comes up. He's like, no, this is, this is stupid. And then time two, he's like, no dice. But at this point, he's committed. All of his servants are watching him three times, four times, five times. Six times. I wonder if he got progressively better or if it was just like still looked really, really ugly until the last time he came up. But it says, when he came up seven times, as the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored and it became clean like that of a young boy. What do we learn here? We learn that humility precedes breakthrough. Naaman had to do something illogical in order to be made whole. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Naaman's humility precedes his breakthrough and Naaman's humility precedes his belief. Naaman humbled himself first and his humility resulted in faith. Humility acknowledges I'm not the center of the universe. Humility says, maybe I don't have all the answers. Humility says, there are certain parts of my life that have become unmanageable. And if there is a God that is out there, now would be a good time for me to hear from him. Elijah answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth, as much dirt as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. May the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm, I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. There's this interesting tidbit here where uh, Naaman says, I'm so grateful for what God did in this moment. I gotta bring a bunch of dirt home. You're like, well, that's odd. That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, back in the day, in a lot of pagan lands, people associated gods with zip codes. They said there's a God of this land and a God of this land and a God of that land. And Naaman goes, I know that the God of Israel is the only one true God, so I'm gonna bring all this dirt home and I'm gonna build an altar to the God of Israel back in my neighborhood. In my house, in my office, so that every time I see it, I'm reminded of what God did in that place. Why? Because God's not a generic God who does interesting things somewhere. He's a very specific God who does amazing things for us in time and space bound moments. And then he has this other interesting thing where he says, look, part of my job when I go to work is to escort my boss, the king, into a pagan temple and he goes and when i bow down there it's only because he's leaning on me that when i when i go into that temple i'm not worshiping that god i'm only serving my boss and i believe that this scenario reminds us that humility precedes boldness naaman has the courage to go right back into the environment that he was in before but to go in as a different person naaman knows who he is and who he serves His entire worldview has shifted. Now, his primary loyalty isn't to the king of Aram, but to the God of all creation. Because he knows who he is and to whom he belongs, he is not afraid to risk his standing in Aram to obey God. Naaman is not hiding his faith when he returns to Damascus. He is contextualizing it in a new environment. And his whole staff who has watched all of this healing transpire, they know that when he enters the temple what he means is that he is honoring his boss, but he is not worshiping an idol. Now after Naaman had traveled some distance Gehazi, the servant of Elisha the man of God, said to himself my master was too easy on Naaman this Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him. I'm going to get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Here's the line that Gehazi says that I want you to kind of ruminate on. Roll this one around in your brain. He goes, my master was too easy on this Aramean. This is not so subtly racist, classist, and nationalistic. He doesn't call him a child of God. He doesn't call him a brother in the faith. He doesn't call him a good neighbor. He calls him this Aramean. And pride in its purest form is always condescending and it believes the worst about other people. Pride will take any negative attribute about somebody and magnify it to the point where it is the only lens through which we view their entire personhood. So pride believes the worst. Pride is perpetually critical, and pride thrives on entitlement. Gehazi is asking this question. Why should a pagan leader who is implicit in Israel's suffering get off for free? Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say two young men from the company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. This is interesting. Gehazi says, just give him one one talent of silver. If you remember from the very beginning of the story, how many talents of silver did Naaman bring? He brought ten. Naaman brought all of this silver, all of this gold, all of this clothes with the intention of giving them away. Gehazi is mortified to see all of them going back to Aram. So the reason he asks for one out of the ten talents is maybe why? Because in the scripture, we call 10 percent of the whole a what do we call 10 percent of the whole in money? We call it a called a tithe. So is it possible that Gehazi is saying like, "Hey, I'm in ministry. I did the work of God. I should get a priest's cut for my time." in this whole little escapade. So it's possible that Gehazi is actually doing some theological gymnastics to justify his pride-driven greed. Naaman says this, by all means, take two talents. So he urged Gehazi to accept them, then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. So how much is a talent? 75 pounds. Gehazi's gotta figure out how to get 150 pounds of silver back home. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away, and they left. Why does he send the men away? Because pride is shady, and pride loves secrecy, and pride pursues privacy for all of the wrong reasons. When Gehazi went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Those your parents, you ever ask a kid a question that you already know the answer to? It's not because you want to know, it's because you're giving them a chance to tell themselves the truth. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. Why? Because pride thrives on self-protection, which is why pride loves to lie. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money? or to accept clothes, or olive groves, and vineyards, or flocks, and herds, or male and female slaves. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow." It's a little backstory. he goes, is now, is now the time to take stuff that doesn't belong to us? See, Elisha is saying, it's our faith in God that sets us apart from the Arameans. It's our faith in God that sets us apart from godless leaders in in Israel. It's no accident that he says, we don't take money, we don't take clothes, we don't take people like the Arameans do. He goes, and we don't take land. Elisha was a servant of Elijah and Elijah called out King Ahab for killing a guy named Naboth just so that he could take his vineyard. This is a story that Gehazi is supposed to know. And Elisha is saying, Gehazi, we've spent our entire lives and ministry calling out gaps in integrity. Spent the entire life setting up the ruler and saying, this is where God is going. Don't diverge from this path. And in a moment, you said you thought you deserved more, that you were worth better. And he goes, and Gehazi, all of that physical ailment that was on Naaman is going to come on you. And I think that sometimes God allows the exterior of our lives to to reflect what has been true about the interior for far too long. In a way, Gehazi wasn't cursed by the leprosy. Gehazi was cursed before it ever showed up on his skin because the interior core of his life was already rotten. Look at the story again. Who is self-centered? Who is other-centered? And for the sake of argument, who is Christ-centered? The slave girl, even though she'd been through her own trauma, was constantly looking out for the needs of others. Naaman started, his, started the story being self-centered, and he ended the story being other-centered. Elisha was focused on the glory of God and the benefit of the people around him. But Gehazi started his ministry, he started his call thinking about others, about how to serve people who are far from God, and he ended his story being focused on himself and self alone. Again, Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus does not offer an empty commentary on humility. He models it at the highest level. Philippians 2 says that although he was God himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not die the death of a noble person. He didn't die the honorable execution of a king. He was executed like a throwaway slave in a matter that stripped him of all dignity in every way. And why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus give his life for crimes that he did not commit? He does it to satisfy the justice of God for the crimes that you and I have committed. Jesus humbled himself so that you and I could be lifted up, lifted out out of the dregs of our own chaos and our own selfishness and our own spiritual violence to a place where we could be forgiven and redeemed and called sons and daughters of God. Jesus' friend Peter wrote this in a letter. He said, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Clothe yourselves with humility humility towards one another. Yesterday, I was driving through downtown Zealand to pick my daughter up from a play performance, and prom must have been in effect because there were young women in radiant gowns walking, getting their pictures taken in gazebos, walking down to restaurants. Like when you go to prom, how much time and energy goes into your outfit? You don't just show up on the day of prom and be like, I'll just throw on this old thing that I found. No, like there's months of energy and many like obscene amounts of dollars that go into an outfit. Why? Because how you look in that moment matters to you. And so it's no accident that Peter says, I want you to think about humility as something that you wear. I want you to put it on every day. I want you to check it in the mirror. And to be able to say, is my posture today one that honors others and points their focus to Christ first? And then he says, I want you to do that because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is actually a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. And then he says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Look at the juxtaposition there. He goes, you have to get under if you want to get up. You have to get under God's mighty hand if you want to be elevated out of the circumstances that you feel stuck in. So let me ask you this question. In what arena of your life is God inviting you to humble yourself under his mighty hand? Are you like Naaman and you're struggling with a set of impossible circumstances. You feel like something is eating away at your life, maybe a hurt or a habit or a hang-up that you cannot seem to outrun. And there's a part of you that says, I don't want to get on my knees, I don't want to ask for help, I don't want to go to a meeting, I don't want to call a sponsor. That's your prerogative. But every single one of those are symptoms of pride. And humility always precedes breakthrough. Some of us, the arena that we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is in the arena of our faith journey. It it would be kind of obnoxious for me to presuppose that everybody who's in this room or everybody who's joining us online already considers themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are some of you who are here because there's there's a stirring in your gut. There's something that feels like it's pulling in your soul saying that there's a God who loves you and wants you to know him and trust Him and follow Him. But there's another part of you that says, you know what, I built this whole brand about myself being intellectual and being rational and being successful and, and not needing the crutch of belief. And, if, and, and me deciding to become a follower of Jesus Christ and be like naming this esteemed warrior dipping down in a river seven times. That's weird. I don't want to do that. And God says, if you humble yourself under my hand, I'll lift you up. So for some of us, the arena in which we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is our home. Remember that one verse that says, where there is strife, there is pride. And all of us go through seasons where we lose our temper, seasons where we struggle with patience. But some of us are involved in a loop where there's just this chronic thread of disagreement. Or there's just this latent hostility that's just simmering right underneath the surface in your home or your extended family network. And you're right on the brink where you're running out of anything positive to find in your spouse. You're always complaining about your kids or you're always disrespecting your parents or you don't wanna be in the same room with your in-laws. And I believe that the invitation for some of us is that God is saying, if you will humble yourself under my hand, and you'll spend less time and energy picking apart what's wrong about that person and more time owning what needs to change in you, I can use you as a change agent in this dynamic. Will you trust me? So maybe you've got an addiction. Maybe you've got a faith crisis. Maybe you've got strife at home. Maybe it's something that's happening at work or school. How many of us, don't raise your hand, Have you ever had a moment where we have felt undervalued or discouraged in your place of employment? And you got in your car and you drove home and you said, I am better than this. I'm better than this team, I'm better than this job, I'm better than this supervisor, I'm better than this salary, I'm better than this benefits package, and the list goes on. When you say that, you're not thriving. And when you're operating out of that mentality, you cannot and will not seek the good of others. And you'll never win. And some of us falsely assume that once we change our work or school environment, that things will get better. But I had a counselor say, see the problem with that is that you bring you with you everywhere you go. So if we're not humbled, then our problems that are unresolved will tend to just get dragged behind us into whatever work or school environment we result in. Think about the slave girl who started this story. She did not choose to be a captive in a foreign land. But she said this, she goes, Lord, as long as I'm here, will you use me for your purposes? I'm not not getting paid to be here. I've been violently ripped apart from my family. But will you fill me with compassion? So that even when I look at my enemies who are struggling, I can pray for them and wish good for them. Maybe the arena, maybe the domain, maybe the sphere where you need to humble yourself under God's mighty hand is your place of work, or your school, or your team. And then some of us, it's it's in our neighborhood. A lot of us, we we just function with tunnel vision when it comes to the places that we live. And we won't connect with the people who live near us, we won't acknowledge the people who live near us, or we won't be reconciled with the people who live near us. And God says, humble yourself under my mighty hand. And when you do, I will lift you, I'll lift you up. I think the truth is that most of us who struggle with pride aren't arrogant everywhere we go, but there are certain lanes of our lives where we are more prone to elevate ourselves than to say, God, what are you doing here? And how can I submit myself to your lordship, your wisdom, and your creativity? Because we can only lead and we can only live to the edge of our insecurities. And our insecurities are always made manifest in our pride. Well, we can let that go and say, God, I know who you are, I see what you're doing, and I'm gonna play my part, however big or small it is, and know that there is joy And there's thriving and flourishing in that response. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for giving us the reminder of you, a king who chose to function like a slave, somebody who allowed yourself to be stripped of all of your dignity and all of your honor and all of your glory and all of your resources so that you could connect with us people that you love who had wandered away, people who were struggling with spiritual leprosy, you, you lowered yourself so that we could be elevated in you and for you and to you. So God, wherever there is fear and pride, I pray that you would root it out in the name of Jesus and that as our eyes are fixed on you, you would liberate us from thinking that is only small enough to care about our own needs, wants, and agendas. And you would blow our vision wide open so that we could see people and causes and opportunities and dreams that we could not see when we were only focused on ourselves. Lord, as we humble ourselves, show grace to us as we humble ourselves, honor us, and remind us that humiliation leads to shame, but humility leads to worship, and that's what we want. Thank you for hearing our cry. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes when your life shifts radically or dramatically, It's a call for humility. And sometimes that happens through circumstances you can't control. And sometimes it happens through events that are kind of happening in life. Today we've got this opportunity to honor our graduating seniors. So if you're a graduating senior, we'd love for you to just go ahead, right at this moment, you can go, go ahead and come on forward. And, and if you are a parent of a senior, or you are a friend, or a small group leader, or a third cousin, or a boss of a graduating, you come on, you come on forward. Um, we want to lay hands on you, we want to commission you, we want to pray for you, we celebrate you. So don't hesitate. Thank you so much. Go ahead and give these guys a hand as they come up. I know we had a lot in the first service, and we got some more that are coming up now. So thank you, guys. Don't be shy. If you're, with, if you're with them, if this is your person, uh, come on up and we're going to pray for them. And then at, when we're done, the team's going to lead us in a song. Let's, I want to give you one just brief word of encouragement. When I was a freshman in high school or a freshman in college, I went to a chapel. And the speaker says, when you know that you're loved by God, you can live your life with nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose. And I think I wasted the first year and a half of my college experience because I was so insecure trying to be somebody that I wasn't my prayer for you is that God would give you just such a clear understanding of how he sees you and what your identity is in Christ, that you could just be so confident in who you are, that you could trust him with everything that you have. That every day when you roll out of bed, you're like, I'm loved by God. Good things are in store for me today. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to honor him with my relationships and my choices and my life. So, in a spirit of solidarity, uh, let's pray for these amazing men and women together. Father God, I thank you for every student that is here. God, I thank you that you have put your hand on their lives in amazing ways. I thank you that you have been faithful to them through all of the, the roller coaster of middle school and high school and trying to figure out who they are and what they want. And Lord, they're at a crossroads at life. They're trying, trying to decide um, if their faith is going to become their own in these next couple of years. They're gonna decide what they wanna be good at, what values they want to carry them into adulthood, what grid they're going to use to decide who they wanna walk through life with. And God, I pray that you would give them wisdom. And I pray, God, that you would remind them that if they enter into a season where all they're feeling is strife, all they have to do is get on their knees and say, God, I think I've lost my way. Will you help me? And God, I thank you that you're not far from any single one of them that you know their dreams and many of those dreams are gifts from you. And I pray that you just give them the bold and reckless tenacity to grab a hold of the God-given life with both of their hands and not let go. Lord, I pray that when we get an update on their stories six months, two years, ten years down the road, we would be absolutely stunned by how you used their gifts and their stories to lead people to faith in you. So God, I pray that you would give them eyes to see what good you have placed in them and just give them the courage to hang on to it every single day. Lord, I pray joy for them. I pray peace for them. I pray wisdom for them. I pray protection over them. Honor them as they honor you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.